Good evening, Los Angeles. Welcome back to another episode of the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Thank you for tuning in with us and joining us this early Saturday morning or late Friday night, however you like to think of it. I am in studio tonight and will be with you for the next hour. And I'm with my good buddy, Mr. Tony Yu, a regular uh, contributor here to Apologetics.com. Tony, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Jason? Doing good. Thank you. And uh, just to let you guys know, tonight's show is sponsored by Branch of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Torrance, California. Uh, Branch of Hope is a Reformed Presbyterian church that meets 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, pastored by Mr. Paul Vigiano, who you could hear also on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. right here on KKLA. He's been on the air for, I don't know, a decade or more, maybe two decades, uh, almost as long as Apologetics.com has been around. We've been around since, I think, the late 90s or right around uh, the turn of the century here, Fridays at midnight on KKLA. So uh, we appreciate you tuning in, and this is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to give to this effort, you can go to Apologetics.com, click on Give, where you can donate and receive a tax-deductible donation. And all of the funds go to uh, the radio ministry and various conferences and things that we do to defend the gospel and uh, bring answers to those around us. So tonight, we're going to be talking about having conversations, uh, particularly with unbelievers, uh, atheists, about the topic of morality and ethics. And this kind of stems from a recent research project that I've been a part of through, um, I think it's Corbin University, and there's a, a PhD student there who's doing a a study on apologetics and the intersection between apologetics and communications and trying to study how we can become more effective and winsome apologists. And what this involves is a series of conversations with atheists, unbelievers, on four topics. You have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have the problem of evil, you have Christian experience and kind of what these people have interacted with uh, Christians, and then you have morality and ethics. So kind of pretty big topics in apologetics, you know, the resurrection, problem of evil, morality and ethics. And I'm going to be having that conversation, the fourth conversation, with uh, a friend of mine that I uh, have gotten to know through this process a bit more, which has been uh, really, really good. And we're going to have this morality and ethics conversation next week. So I'm hoping to uh, glean some things from Tony tonight on uh, how I can be a little bit more effective in that conversation. And we wanted to discuss it with you guys and kind of have you guys listen in. Uh, you guys are welcome to chime in as uh, you feel led. You can call us at 888-995-5552. That's 888 kkla if you'd like to jump into the conversation or just really have any questions about apologetics or uh, the scriptures that you'd like to throw out there and Tony and I could uh, give you give you a response. Um, you know, one of the more recent apologists and well-known apologists is C.S. Lewis, and he talked about the moral argument and just kind of to kind of frame it a little bit in kind of his words, he's a very good author, writer, speaker, just building pictures with words really. 
And to summarize, I'll summarize C.S. Lewis's moral argument, and then we'll kind of put it into a bit of like a, you know, premise A, premise B, conclusion type thing. But C.S. Lewis's moral argument for the existence of God is based on the universality of this moral sense of right and wrong that really exists which within each person. Um, and it points us, C.S. Lewis would argue, to a lawgiver. And you'll hear other apologists kind of refer to this, and Tony and I will dig into this a bit uh, as well later. But Lewis argues that the evidence from the moral law to God is better than the evidence from the reality of the universe, since we find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general. So kind of in a nutshell there, you know, Scripture tells us that we can know things about God through understanding what's been made. Right, that all men are without excuse uh, because we live in his creation. And creation, we look around us, tells us things about God. And, you know, we've done plenty of radio shows on that before, a lot of, you know, evidence, you know, from science or, you know, the physical sciences. But Lewis is saying we find out more about God from the moral law, our conscience, you know, this these objective moralities, these objective values that all people hold. Um, we learn more about God from those than we do from looking at the universe. And so he believes that our shared rule book uh, is known as the moral law, and that can only come from that moral lawgiver who is God, right? And so he says that the moral argument has the ability to convince, if there really is a standard of right and wrong, that holds true regardless of our opinions and emotions. So he says kind of the crux of it's here. If you can show that there are moral values, there is a standard of right and wrong that holds true, regardless of our opinions and emotions, then that has the ability to convince people um, very powerfully. You know, basically, if these objective moral values exist, then God must exist. And so that's kind of what we'll be unpacking unpacking tonight. Um, one of the starting points that I like to establish whenever I'm having these conversations. And Tony, you could chime in too. I don't know if you like, when you're having these conversations, what sort of groundwork you might start off with. But one of the things I like to do, especially in these more, you know, if it's an academic or you know you're sitting down with an unbeliever um, and you're going to be talking about these, these things openly and respectfully, one of the things that I like to do is kind of before we even get to any of the details is establish this idea that I think every rational person would agree to. And that's basically that if you find your worldview leading you to some contradictory end, right? If, if you, if you start with your worldview and you take a couple logical steps and you come to the conclusion that, you know, the sky is blue and you start back from the same premise and you do a lo other logical steps and you get to this idea that the, the sky is red, you know, you should abandon that foundational view that has the ability to lead you to, you know, both conclusions, right? You've, you've walked into a contradiction, you've walked into an absurdity, and it's because that you're starting from the wrong foundation. And so I like to kind of, you know, get that out in front and then as we walk through this kind of moral argument, when we get to those points where, hey, well, if you believe that God doesn't exist, 
then how do you reconcile that with this reality or this reality? Um, and then once you show that it's a contradiction, hopefully what that's done is if they're honest, they'll be like, they'll really re hopefully reevaluate, reconsider, rethink their position. Um, and so I kind of like to lay some of that groundwork at the beginning of these conversations. And, you know, um, people might find that helpful. People might have other, other things that they do as well. Um, but what do you think, Tony, when you're starting out these conversations, um, you know, do you just dive right in or do you like to, you know, lay some foundational principles or how do you generally approach? approach I haven't done the practice of laying foundational principles, but that's a good idea. But let me give you a real world example that I can literally point to as a conversation I had maybe a dozen years ago mm -hmm. at the Long Beach Gay Pride Parade. Okay. If my memory serves me right, the young lady had pink hair. She, I think, told me she was bisexual. And I needed to try to explain to her that that was a sin. Mm -hmm. But I didn't believe that by saying that it's a sin, she would necessarily agree with me right away. So I gave her a little mm -hmm. um, discussion that walked her down some logical paths. So yeah. I said, in the United States, we drive on the right-hand side of the road. In the United Kingdom, they drive on the left-hand side of the road. If we all agreed together and we voted, could we move the cars from the right side of the road to the left side of the road in the United States? And she, she said, yes. Yeah. So that's a law we can change. Mm -hmm. There's another kind of a law that says it's wrong to murder people for fun. Is that a law we can change? Even if we all voted unanimously to change that law to say that murder is good? And she said, no, we can't change that law. So my next question was, why are there some laws we can change as human beings and there are other laws we can never change, even if we all agree to change the law. Mm -hmm. She was stumped. So yeah. what I led her to next is you're encountering a law that actually comes from God. These yeah. are immutable moral laws. Yeah, that's good. And the fact that there are some laws we can change and some laws we can't, the laws we can't change tells us that it's coming from a source outside of us. Any law that's created by human beings can be changed by human beings. Yeah. But we know that there are laws that govern human behavior that are entirely unchangeable. Right. And that demands the existence of God. Yeah. Now let's close the loop and get to the, the fact that this lady says that she was bisexual. So included in the moral laws is the laws of sexuality. Right. Just like you can't say... I, I changed the law on murder today, neither can you change the laws on sexuality. Mm -hmm. So homosexuality, bisexuality, fornication, adultery, they're all wrong. Right. And none of us can say that they're right just because we want them to be right. Mm -hmm. And I could tell that sh she was being moved by the argument. Mm -hmm. So that's an example. That's great. Yeah. So you kind of take a, a practical, if so, if, you know, example... And then you kind of transition it to this spiritual slash moral kind of example. Um, that's really good. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of open that open that idea in her mind about laws and mm -hmm. the nature of laws. The unchangeability. Yeah. And then you of kind of laws. redirect that to her specifically um, and this lifestyle that she's chosen or whatever it is to show that, yeah, even if we... If, if if we make up our mind and said, oh, this is now okay, that doesn't make it 
okay. Right. Right. There's still a law. There's still consequences uh, for breaking that law. I can say the law of gravity no longer exists, but I would be wrong. Yeah, exactly. And if you tried to violate it, you could it would be hurt. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. So those are some kind of different ways that you guys can glean uh, from starting these conversations and just some practical tips there. So looking at the objective uh, or the moral argument in a kind of more argument you know, layout, it would basically states this. So the premise one is uh, if objective moral values exist, then God must exist, okay? If objective moral values exist, God must exist. Then we look around the world and we see objective moral values do exist. Therefore, the conclusion is God exists. And so that's, that's basically the argument. And where do we get challenges when on that argument? Okay, so we could lay that argument out. It doesn't mean everyone's convinced, you know. Um, and so there's objections that come in. And in my experience, obviously, there's if objective moral values exist, right? That's one of the main premises. And so you'll get some pushback there sometimes, right? Saying that all uh, moral values are subjective. Right. Okay. You could say we, yeah, we made this up, you know, people decide whatever it is. We made up these rules at some point along the way. Um, so they're not objective. Let's explore that. But they might be good. Yeah. So um, people throw that out there. They're like, well, eh, no, objective moral values don't exist. You know, what's what's you, what's right for you is right for you and it might not be right for me. You know, that's, you that's a very common phrase. You're, yeah. You're this way. I'm this way. You know. You like chocolate ice cream, I like vanilla, whatever it might be. You know, your truth is your truth. They apply that to morality, okay? So they might do some category errors. It might be a variety of things, but let's explore that with someone you're we'll, talking to. We'll put them into a, a reductio ad, ad absurdum headlock. So <laughs> let's... Uh, a let's gentle headlock. <laughs> <laughs> let's explore what Mental that means. Mental headlock. <laughs> yes. Let's explore what that means if uh, morality was subjective. If morality right. is subjective, entirely subjective, then Hitler did nothing objectively evil. You should not object to Hitler exterminating Jews and anybody else. Right. Are you okay with that? And most people who are of the, of the camp that morality is subjective, they are very pro-homosexual. Mm -hmm. They tend to be of the same camp. So would you be okay with um, people who dislike homosexuals putting them in camps and exterminating them. Right. It's crazy because we, we end up in a, in, in a mental asylum. Right. If we say morality is subjective, mm -hmm. there's nothing that's actually objectively right or wrong. Yeah. Killing babies is not wrong for fun. Rape, murder. Not for fun. Not wrong. Right. Um, let me see your wallet. He sticks right. out his wallet, grab the wallet, not a problem, right? I'm I'm gone. Right. I, I've got your wallet. I did nothing wrong. Right. Yeah. Objective of objective moral values always exist when the crime or offense is basically turned back towards you know the person claiming that they don't exist. Right. Um, and this really this particular premise is one of the most obvious, I think, and self evident truths for all humanity. Right. To really try to stand. <laughs> to stand in front of anyone and say, yeah, 
there are no objective moral values. You know, it's child torture, child rape. Like there's there's some way that you could you could justify that, or it's it's okay for someone to do it somewhere. It's like, you know, if you want to get get to the point where you're trying to defend that, again, you're dealing with a person at that point that is, um, you know, you might just be casting pearls before swine. You know what I mean? Which is just, you know, Jesus tells us when you meet people like that, just you know, kind of kick the dust off your feet and and carry on. You know, you're not you're not likely to get very far with someone like that. That person probably has a billion dollars in his bank account. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, yeah. There you go. And, um, you know, one of the things, w- w- what I appreciate about the moral uh, argument and when it comes to evangelism is God has given us, all of this relates back to his law. Right, and God has given us His law in order to kind of break through some of this subjective um, thinking when it comes to morality. And you know, you know better than better than anyone, Tony, um, the power of God's law to convince a person that there are absolute standards of right and wrong. And God's laws was defined to do that. And God's law is meant to show us our sin show us that we've fallen short. Um, and as soon as you, you start walking someone through God's moral law, which is written on our hearts, um, such as you shall, you know, you shall not lie. Have you ever lied before? Um, you, you shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Even if it's small, you know, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever looked at a person with lust? Those sort of things, everyone knows they've done those things. They readily admit to them, and in their heart, they know they're wrong. Because when you usually ask them, "Well, if God judged you by those, you know, knowing that you've broken them, would you be innocent or guilty?" and people say guilty, you know, because they know in their heart that those things are wrong. So God's law has that special uh, power, um, ability to to speak to a person's conscience you know, kind of bypass their, all the arguments and stuff and just kind of speak directly to their heart, which is, um, which is amazing. I've seen so many people with stunned looks when I ask those simple questions and they answer. Sometimes you see this huge light bulb go above their head. Right. Yeah. And you could get a person literally in a couple minutes to go from saying, Oh, I'm a really good person. I would definitely go to heaven if I, if I died today or something. And within just a few minutes, they, with their own lips, are saying, no, if I died, I would be justly condemned for my sins against God and uh, headed for punishment, you know. they So they went from being a relativist <laughs> to a objectivist. Right. And you've seen my videos. I get them to confess that they are condemned to hell mm-hmm. without me making any declarative statements. All I right. do is ask questions. Right. And so that's the power. Um, so in the midst of all of this, as you're having these conversations with people, you want to remember that the goal is to get to the gospel, right? If you get someone just to believe God exists because objective moral values exist, that's great, but... It's a step. It's a step, but it's, it's, not, it's not the goal in and of itself, right. right? Don't stop there if you don't have um, to stop there. It, and this is really, a lot of this is really geared towards um, atheists, 
-hmm. because these arguments are designed specifically to address that question of God's existence, right? And so if you're dealing with an atheist, absolutely, that's got to be the first step, right? Mm -hmm. Step number one, before they're going to repent and believe, you know, they need to believe God exists, right? Mm -hmm. And that he is. Um, Otherwise, they're never going to, you know, repent and believe in him if they don't believe he exists. Um, So those are some objections that come up. So... Let's talk about the next step in the in the argument. If objective moral values exist, okay, which they do, we'll, we'll say we got there. God must exist. So how do we make that step? How does that one follow the other? Good. Um, so and where to? And then we could talk about objections at that point too. So like, it, like it's wrong to murder, for instance. We all agree on that. It's wrong to rape. We all agree on that. The question is, where do these laws come from? Do they come from man or do they come from outside of man? If they come from man, why are we even paying attention to it? What are human beings? Especially if you're an atheist, you believe we're nothing but accidents. We're animals. And our Mm -hmm. thoughts are nothing more than chemical, electrical impulses going on inside of this blob that we call the brain. Right. Why do I care about your electrochemical process going on inside your brain? Why should I care? It's irrelevant. One day, your brain is going to be gone. You're going to die. Your brain's going to rot. Yeah. The only reason why we should care about these moral laws is because it's coming from outside of us, coming from an absolute source, and there will be consequences, eternal consequences for disobeying these laws that we have so knit into our hearts. Mm-hmm. That's why. So they either only come from man or from outside of man. And from man, it's irrelevant. Right. From outside of man, we call him God. Right. He's going to judge us. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like the way our, my former beloved Ravi Zacharias <laughs> apologist puts this. Uh, one of my favorites, really, taught me so much, um, especially on this, on this topic. Um, I think Ravi Zacharias was at a, some sort of a, speaking event where he was answering questions from the audience and this question of evil came up you know there's there can't be god because you know there's evil exists like if god exists then evil would not exist and ravi zacharias said this and it 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 kind of brings us together in terms of objective morals and the existence of god he said he said when you say there's too much evil in this world you assume there's good When you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral lawgiver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral lawgiver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What then is your question? Right? And if you look that up online, it's it's brilliant, you know, the way the way it plays out. Um, and he's not trying to be, um, you know, he's not trying to put someone down. He's not trying to do anything like that. He's just he's just reasoning with them. And I think if you grasp this, when I first grasped this, it was it was so fun and so exciting to like uh, realize what he's saying. And it's basically, um, you know, these objective moral values exist. You know, it's good 
not to murder, right? It's bad to murder, right? But to say something's good and something's bad, you have to have a basis, a standard to differentiate. That standard, that moral law, must come from a lawgiver, and that lawgiver is God. Now, for an atheist, delete the moral lawgiver. You, you try to get rid of him. Okay, so now in your universe, in your worldview, no moral lawgiver exists. Well, then there's no moral law, right? Then there's no basis, there's no standard to say one thing's good and one thing's evil. So the fact that the atheist is objecting to anything, even, you know, religion, is, again, leading to that absurdity. You know, one of the things you said is you want to do reductio ad absurdum. Get him in a reductio ad absurdum headlock, right? Well, that's, that's kind of what this does, right? And, you know, so when an atheist, as soon as they argue or posit any sort of objection... Say, you're wrong, I'm right. Religion is bad. Religion is bad. You Religion know, like is Dawkins evil. Said, yeah. But they're doing it at the same time saying God doesn't exist. They are doing that contradiction. They're living out that contradiction, which if they're, if you go back to the very beginning of our, of our conversation here, you said, hey, if, if your worldview leads you right into a contradiction or an absurdity, you should abandon that worldview and that which is leading you to an irrational way of living, an irrational way of thinking. And hopefully, you know, that that sort of thing is enough to get someone to at least second guess their atheism and, you know, try to, you know, open their open their eyes a little bit to see a little further um, towards the truth. Um, I hear some music in the background, so that means we are up against our first break. So we are at the end of the first half hour, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher, and we're challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm here in studio with Tony Yu. And we are talking tonight about morality and ethics and how we go about having those conversations with those around us, particularly those who don't believe in God, who uh, define themselves as atheists or agnostics, but really anyone. Um, this is a this moral argument is a very, very valuable argument and has a, a lot of good kind of tangential um, truths that can help you in a lot of different conversations. You know, it really, when people bring up this problem of evil and suffering, it really goes back to morality and ethics and what is good and what is evil. And we were just kind of talking about that a little bit at the end of the first half. Um, and we wanted to kind of give a very, very <laughs> direct example of one of the most famous atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins. And, you know, the one thing we were saying is... If someone's worldview leads them to a contradictory state of belief, well, we know that, you know, it's illogical to believe in two contradictory positions, right? It's the law of non-contradiction, and it believe, it means you're believing something false, right? If you say something's blue and not blue, whatever it is you, you're, you think is both blue and not blue and at the same time and in the same sense is uh, 
a fallacy, right? It's not true. It's a lie. And so anytime you find yourself in that position, you're believing a lie, you're living a lie. And we were pointing out how um, particularly the atheistic worldview um, finds themselves kind of believing this lie when, on one hand, they reject God, and then on the other hand, they, they decry things as evil and wrong. Well, when you, when you get rid of God, you, you lose good, you lose evil, you, you lose that standard on which to differentiate anything good or anything evil. So um, that's where they're holding these contradictory positions, and we need to point that out, and hopefully, by God's grace, they will realize that and uh, turn away from you know, living a lie and turn towards the truth. And so I think Richard Dawkins, he wrote a book. I mean, he's done... I haven't heard as much about him recently. He was bigger maybe when I was more into, you know, refuting evolution and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely was a big figure in the atheistic community, wrote books and all that, and, you know, um, had a a loud megaphone for a while there. But Tony had, I think, some quotes from him that kind of show this firsthand. So from the book River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins writes, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So in that book, he's arguing that there's no such thing as good or evil. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with him if there is no such thing as God. Right. That's kind of him being consistent, right? Right. I think that is the logical outworking of his worldview. So no such thing as good or evil. Right. But here's another quote from him. I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Mm -hmm. So there he's saying something is evil. Faith. Two things. Yeah. Faith and the smallpox virus. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. right. So... On the one hand, he's saying there's no such thing as good or evil. Right. But good and evil are so obvious to him, he can't help but appeal to that reality. Right. So he's contradicting himself, and he's sort of making a fool of himself when you see these two juxtaposed next to each other. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. You know, I didn't notice that at first, but he says, you know, this is like the smallpox virus. So he's basically saying the smallpox virus is evil. And so is faith, right? It's, mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. And I, you know, I think we could we could kind of dig into this a little bit more as we go along. But faith is um, it's an immaterial thing, mm-hmm. right? It's metaphysical, right? This idea of faith, putting your faith in something, and he's saying that's evil, right? This metaphysical kind of immaterial thing. He's also saying this virus is evil, and that's a physical thing. That's a you know, it's a cellular, molecular kind of thing that exists in the world. Uh, and so you see that juxtaposition right there of the physical and the non-physical, and he's calling both of them evil. I do think that is an interesting uh, observation, and I and we'll get into that a little bit more as we, as we talk about um, the the body and soul, you know, how we are made in God's image, but we are, we are physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. Um, so, but before we, before we get there, Tony, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the misunderstandings that people try to bring into this 
it's an, it's along the line of um, objections, right? Mm-hmm. And um, before I get too far, too, I'll, I'll throw out our number again that and uh, let any listeners know that you're welcome to join the conversation. If you have uh, your own ways of, you know, explaining morality and ethics to people around you, you know, feel free to call in and share that with us. Or if you have questions in general about apologetics or defending the faith, uh, give us a call, 888-995-5552. That's 888-995-KKLA. Um, if you're awake and you feel like chatting, you feeling kind of chatty tonight. Um but so this one objection that comes along, and I don't know if it's a category mistake or a red herring or whatever it is, you, you probably know the mm-hmm. fallacy category better than me, but what they'll do on this question of morality, they'll say, hey, you know, I know plenty of non-believers, I know plenty of atheists who are just as good, if not better people than any religious person or any Christian Um, so that proves this moral argument is, you know, that disproves this whole moral argument. You don't need God to have morality, right? And they kind of do that little, it's a sleight of hand because it's not really relevant, but I want you to unpack that a little bit for our listeners and how we, you would navigate that. Right. So that most likely is a misunderstanding of the moral argument for the existence of God. They think when we're making the moral argument for the existence of God that we are saying that if you don't believe in God, you're necessarily a bad person. And if you believe right. in God, you're necessarily a good person. We are not saying that. What we are actually saying is there is no such thing as good or evil if God does not exist. Yes. There are good atheists. There are good Christians. There are bad atheists. There are bad Christians in the general worldly sense of good and bad, where it's sort of relatively good and relatively bad. Right. The kind of good that God demands of us is moral perfection, but that's a separate story. So they don't understand the the moral argument. What we're saying is, if God doesn't exist, there is no such category as good or evil. Therefore, you can't say religion or Christianity is bad. You can't say this virus is bad. Right. Because... For instance, why did uh, Dawkins think that a, a virus is bad? Because they harm they people. Kill people. Yeah. Harm and people. what's the underlying assumption under, under that? He assumes that human beings have value. Well, that's an assumption, isn't it? Unless God exists and he says, I made them in my image. But that is so yeah. obvious to him that he knows human beings are valuable because he has a conscience. Yeah. We all have a conscience, therefore we know right from wrong in a general sense. Yeah. It is so powerful that we can't, we don't even realize we're making the assumption we're operating on this knowledge that is outside of science. It's a different way of knowing. When we see a a grown man beat up a a child for fun, we instinctively know that it's wrong, Mm -hmm. but we can't prove it scientifically. Mm -hmm. There is no way to measure that evil, Mm -hmm. right? You can't see, see it under a microscope. You can't weigh it on a scale. Uh-huh. There's no evil meter. Right. So yeah. if you if you have an atheistic, materialistic, scientific worldview, and that's all there is, then for you, there is no such thing as evil. So you can't say Hitler was evil. And if you try to invent some sort of good based on the idea of functionality, like good promotes 
the the goodness of of more people living a productive life, right. multiplying the, the species. Well, let's ex explore that. Let's say you have this building housing a thousand disabled people. Yeah. And they are sucking up resources from the society at large just to sustain them. Right. They're not producing anything for society. Right. As a Christian, we say we care about all human beings because they are made in the image of God. But mm -hmm. if you're an atheist, the only logical conclusion is we should execute them, save the money, and use that to benefit the gifted kids so they can invent more things and make society even better. Mm -hmm. Or, or if, if you think there are certain groups you don't like, they're producing less, get rid of them. Yeah. And just have this super race, this Aryan race, or whatever race that you right. want. And that's, yeah, it's happened. Right? So yeah. the, the logical conclusion of atheism is Nazism or communism or any other evil. Survival that, of the fittest. Exactly. You know, might is right. So let's say you want to sleep with your neighbor's wife. Right. Well, survival of the fittest says you should. You know why? Because you are smarter than your neighbor who's overly trusting and you get to reproduce. And the right. world will become, will become a stronger, smarter place. Yeah. Yeah, you want to pass on your stronger, smarter genes. and Who cares who you do it with? Right. You know. So uh, atheism, if you follow the logic, leads to evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, scripture's full of those, you know, proverbs and psalms. The and fool has said in his, his heart, there is no God, or those who hate me love evil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think hating God would fall into the category of denying his existence. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and really what it comes down to, I think a lot of times, is they deny God, not not really intellectually, right? Because you've brilliant people on both sides of this conversation. It's not an intellectual thing. You always say it's a moral thing. Mm -hmm. You don't like the either idea of being subject to um, a lawgiver, right? Um, a morality that you don't get to decide, right? Or you think your standard of ethics or morality is superior to God's, and therefore you judge him as evil according to your standard, and at the same time, you know, deny him or dismiss his existence. Um, it, it really is kind of a fascinating uh, way of thinking and reasoning. Um, I did want to touch on, Tony, this idea of, you know, you mentioned we don't have an evil meter, and uh, you see someone beating someone up on the street or whatever it is, and you kind of know, you know that's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know it's evil. You know that shouldn't be happening. Um, and you don't need to run some science experiment to know that. You know that innately. You know that in your heart. You know that in your, your conscience um, because God has given us that. And I, so I wanted to talk about this. I think this is a really fascinating, you know, interesting area to explore along, you know, when we're having this conversation. And we are... God tells us in his word that we are physical beings and we're spiritual beings, right? We're made of body and soul, right? Um, God breathes life into us, mm -hmm. right? Um, Adam became a living being, a living spirit when God breathed the breath of life into him. And so we have this dual existence, um, physical and immaterial. We also 
in our world, we have science, we have the hard sciences, which you and I are both engineers. Um, so we love science. We understand it. We use it um, to our advantage. And but there's also and I but there's also this moral law. And what we're talking about is morality. Right. And I want to kind of just highlight this for people that just as we have physical laws, you know, you have the law of gravity, you have the law, laws of acoustics, which is allowing you to hear our voices right now. You have sound waves going through the air. They're vibrating your eardrum. That's acoustics, you know, and then they're being translated into electrical signals into your brain. And those are being processed. So you have chemistry going on. You have acoustics going on. You have physics going on all around us every day of our lives. Right. And we can't escape that. We live in this world that is governed by these physical laws, right? The eyesight, whatever you're looking at right now, that's all optics. You know, it's all light. Um, all of that can really be described with equations, scientific equations that govern, you know, light and optics and lenses and chemistry and all those things, right? We've kind of explored all these areas and we've boiled it down and we have these laws. And that's just the way the world is. We live in that world. And all those laws, um, they're not physical, right? They, just, they, they control the physical reality around us, but the laws that control our world are not themselves physical. Like the law of gravity is an immaterial reality. It's like this immaterial framework that all matter is subject to, right? <coughs> And the same is true for anything, electricity, fluid dynamics, fluid mechanics, all of it, right? And we know and we respect these laws, and we don't think we can go around changing these laws. No one thinks they can go around changing the law of gravity, right? If you happen to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, gravity is going to pull you down to this earth at a constant acceleration until you come into contact with, you know, equal and opposite force, <laughs> And usually that force is going to be enough to do major damage to you and it's going to kill you. Right. And that's just physics. It's all just physics. Um, you know, so you violate the laws of physics. There are serious consequences, right. That can await you. And so we respect those laws, right. So we don't jump out of planes without parachutes, right. We don't, most of us don't walk on tight ropes between buildings. You know what I mean? We wear seatbelts. You know, we do all of these things because we respect this, these laws that govern this physical reality around us, right? Now, I want, everyone knows that, everyone understands that, but I want people to make this connection in their mind because a lot of people don't do this, but it's just, just like God spoke all those laws into existence that govern this physical world, God has spoken laws that govern morality. They govern our behavior. They govern our actions. They govern every area of life. So our not only is our physical world governed by God, but the moral and immaterial spiritual world is also governed by God. Here's the kicker, though. Here's, <laughs> here's why people are perfectly fine uh, breaking the law of adultery or breaking the law of, you know, bearing false witness or dishonoring your parents. Because unlike a physical law, whereas you stub your toe, it hurts. Whereas you get too close to the stove, it burns. 
and you feel it right away. And so you realize I shouldn't do that. I'm not going to do that again. Well, God is patient. God is kind. And in his forbearance and long suffering, he has chosen not to punish us immediately for sinning against him in a moral sense, right? So when we lie, although the wages of sin is death, we all des- while Adam deserved to die when he sinned against God, God didn't, God didn't, God spared him, and God spares us every day. But and so we've come to this place where we think we've gotten away with it, or we think, well, lying really isn't a big deal. I don't, you know, nothing hurts. I don't get really harmed when I lie to whoever, my friends or whoever. Um, but the truth is, it's as if you've jumped out of a plane and you're just kind of making that descent. And that law, just like that law of gravity is pulling you towards the ground, every time we we break God's law, his moral law, it's actually pulling us towards death. And we're in that free fall, headed towards death. And I think it's just important to point that out um, because people people will make that you know connection easily with scientific laws, physical laws, but they don't make it with moral laws. And when they make it with moral laws, that's the connection that has the power to really convert a soul. And um, while we are in that free fall towards death, um, God has done something amazing to spare us from the consequences of that. He's given us a parachute, so to speak, that's going to save us from our sin. Um, and you like to talk about that. Yeah, so sometimes... <laughs> sometimes Does that make sense, though? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We don't feel the immediacy of the consequence of committing a sin against someone but you feel the immediate consequences when you're the victim of that sin. Yeah. So if, if, I, right. if I broke into your car and stole a good all the contents, right, and I got away with it, and I never get caught, mm-hmm. I don't feel anything other than the benefit. Right. But as soon as you see what happened to your car, and now you've got to buy a new car or buy all these uh, objects again, yeah. You, you feel immediately the consequence. Yeah. So part of our problem of human beings is we don't sense the damage we're doing to other people. True. The victims feel it a lot more, right? And immediately. Yes. So we lack empathy. Mm-hmm. We don't feel another human being as our brother or sister or as ourselves. Yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And I just thought of a interesting parallel is that... Um, all the law, all the court systems that we have set up, the justice systems, those those court systems are there to actually carry out uh, punishments for breaking moral laws, right? To inflict pain on the one who committed the discretion, uh, yeah. the indiscretion. So you know, when we break a physical law, we stub our toe, we do this, whatever, we feel that immediately. But we're we're not going to go to court, and they're not going to punish us further for stubbing our toe. Like we, you know, we we felt that okay, we know it's bad, we'll avoid it. But when we do do something like steal, when we rob, or murder, or you know, commit some other sort of crime, we the entire court system throughout our country uh, is met to punish these moral laws because we know inherently that there is some sense of justice there is right and wrong and there is just punishments for these crimes there's deterrence and retribution yeah and, and that 
these things are all spelled out in God's word right. ultimately, and we should actually be looking to God's word to kind of understand, well, what should we do when someone steals? Like, sh- should we throw them in a cage for five years? Well, I don't see that in scripture, really. I do see repayment and restoration and then going beyond that payment and kind of allowing this person to to restore what they've taken mm-hmm. and pay back their debt to not only that person, but to the community. And then once that debt's been paid, they actually go beyond that and pay back more. And they've kind of like, they get to kind of, um, it's a redemption and they get to come back into that society and contribute again, which is different than our current penal system where they throw people in cages for the rest of their life. Um, that's, that's, that's a different topic for a different um, night, but I'm just, everything around us speaks and cries to this sense that God has given us of his moral law and his justice. The justice system is an attempt to reflect God's law. At, it, mm-hmm. at its best, it is reflecting God's law. Obviously, it falls yeah. short. So even the way we want justice is sort of crying out to the fact that God exists. Yeah, absolutely. We, it's inescapable. You know, and so when you're having these these conversations with with friends or family, you know, hopefully, um, you know, some of these things can be can be helpful. Um, and again, you know, pointing out these areas of, of contradiction or absurdity is helpful, and gently helping them to see those sort of those sort of things. I'm going to quote another Dawkins quote. It says. Yeah. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Okay? Okay. So he's saying basically we're we're just machines with certain programming. We can't help ourselves, right? Yeah. So if if Dawkins literally believed that, Mm -hmm. and he had, let's say, a daughter who was murdered by a a, a thief, would he say, oh, well, DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And he, that murderer, that that thief, just danced to the music of his DNA. Say la vie. Yeah. No. He would say, I want justice. Yeah. That means he's saying there's a God. It's an unlivable situation. It's he can't live up to his own standard. He can't live up to his own worldview. I'm right? gonna say the I'm logical gonna, outworking of it. I'm gonna say a bad word. Okay. Atheism is stupid. We'll bleep it. Oh, bleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's very stupid when you yeah. really follow it. Oh, the fool has said in his heart. Right. You know, there is the no stupid God. person scripture, has said in his heart. Yeah, scripture said that long before you did. So we're allowed to quote the Bible here. So yeah. I don't think it's a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's make sure we share the gospel. Absolutely. Yeah. So... If they haven't got it already, let's give it to them again. That's right. <laughs> you know, all, all this talk about right and wrong, morality, it's, it's to get to the point of the gospel. But in order for you to understand the gospel, you, you need to understand right. that you need the gospel. Right. And like, so like I was saying, we're, pl- we're, we're plunging. Right. We're, we're, we're in this free fall towards death. It feels pretty good while you're free, free falling, right? Right, right, right. And what has God done for us? So we deserve hell, every last one of us, myself included, especially me. But Amen. in God's grace and love, he doesn't want us to spend eternity in hell. God will punish every sin committed by every mm-hmm. single human being ever. Yeah. And either you pay 
or the son of God pays. Mm-hmm. He's that generous. So yeah. I don't want you to pay because if a human being pays for his sins, he will spend eternity in hell because he has nothing to pay. He's trapped in debtor's prison. But we have a generous benefactor named Jesus Christ who is infinitely Amen. wealthy and he paid at extreme um, expense to himself by coming in and he was punished in our place. That's mm-hmm. good news. He is paying the bill you can't pay. The lamb over me. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is the lamb. And he rose again after he paid that bill. And he demands of us that we respond to that act by repenting of our sins, turning our, from our, our sinful ways and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Mm-hmm. He is Lord. That means he's the maker of the law. And we can't believe in a master that we never obey. Amen. That's why we need to repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah. Repent is not being perfect. Repent means you change your mind about your sinful behavior and you, and you change your direction. You've repented as soon as you changed your mind. You haven't even twitched a muscle. That counts as repentance. But true repentance will lead to a change in behavior. Yeah. That combined with believing in Jesus is how you're saved. So if you're in sin, whatever it is, it's... Uh, Big, small. Yeah, it's getting to one o'clock. Maybe you're leaving the bar. Maybe you're leaving someplace unsavory. Repent and believe in Jesus. He is gracious. He wants to forgive, but you need to repent and run to Jesus. Run to the cross. Lay your sin there at the cross. Pick up the cross. Follow Jesus, even if he takes you to death and suffering. Amen. Amen. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's why I had Tony do it. (laughs) Thank you, Tony, for being here. Always appreciate it. And thank you guys for tuning in and listening and joining us for Apologetics.com Radio. This is Jason Gallagher signing off. Until next Friday, keep the faith. God bless you guys.